Hi, this is Pam Johnson. I'm continuing my talk on thoracic endovascular stent repair, and we're going to move on to talk about our role as radiologists in the preoperative evaluation. There are, are variables that clearly go on, go beyond the imaging findings, including the patient's medical condition, um, the location and extent of the pathology, requirement for branch vessel occlusion, the risk of spinal cord ischemia, and then something that we really need to be aware of, and that is the angulation of the order and the size and configuration of the runoff vessels. So all of these factor into the, to the decision of whether a patient is a candidate for endovascular stent repair. And that is our role preoperatively. We have to perform a number of specific analyses to provide the interventionalist or the surgeon with enough information to guide stent placement. So anatomic information, of course, includes the caliber of the femoral and iliac arteries because the femoral artery must be large enough to accommodate the uh, catheter and stent. The degree of tortuosity and calcification, when these are severe, it can impede stent delivery. The distance from the proximal and distal aspects of the pathology to the closest branch vessel, similar to abdominal aortic stent placement, we need an adequate landing zone so that we can have a tight seal of the stent to the aortic wall. Proximal, acceptable proximal landing zones range from 1.5 to 3 centimeters in length. If the landing zone is inadequate, options include use of a fenestrated or branch, branched graft to enable perfusion of the artery or pre-procedural bypass surgery to, to ensure perfusion once the artery is covered by the stent. Stent sizing is tailored to the patient's aortic diameter and the diameter of the proximal neck is used to determine the stent size. So this is an additional measurement that we need to provide in our pre-procedural pre interpretation. The caliber of the aorta at the proximal neck, the, the, the length of the pathology, the caliber of the femoral and iliac arteries. And in terms of the stent sizing, sealing of the graft to the wall is optimized by oversizing the graft by 10 to 15%. Multiplanar images, both 2D MPRs and 3D rendering are essential for the accurate measurements to, and to communicate information to the surgeon. In a patient with a tortuous aorta, um, the axial images are really not going to provide the most accurate measurements of the aortic lumen, particularly if it's coursing obliquely through the, through the uh, axial plane. And... Um, Measurements need to be performed on the sagittal and coronal multiplanar reconstructions. Even more accurate is the new technique of semi-automated center line um, processing where points can be placed on a 3D rendered image and a curved planar reconstruction is created, which gives us an accurate assessment of the both the diameter and the volume of the lumen, um, which is probably the most reproducible method and is going to become very important in the future for both pre-operative assessment for evaluation of change over time in patients who are being imaged serially and for follow-up. So the predictors of complication that you can identify on a pre-operative CT are specific variations in aortoiliac morphology whether or not there's an adequate landing zone, and the length of the aortic pathology. So let's first talk about the aortoiliac morphology. Aortic, it has been shown in the literature that curvature at different points in the aorta 
carries a risk of a specific type of endoleak. So firstly, aortic arch curvature increases the risk of a type 1A endoleak. If there's curvature at the thoracoabdominal junction, the patient has increased risk of a type 1B endoleak. Curvature in the mid-portion of the descending thoracic aorta has been associated with a higher risk of type 3 endoleak. Similarly, aortic angulation can be problematic. In a paper that defined steep angulation as greater than 90 degrees, steep arch angulation was associated with increased risk of retrograde type A dissection, which is a serious complication, and as well as type 1A endoleak and steep angulation at the thoracoabdominal junction increase the risk of a type 1B endoleak. So as you can imagine, um, it prevents adequate sealing when there's angulation or too much curvature in these locations. There was a study that defined an aortoiliac scoring system to look at all how all of these variables affected the success of stent placement and the risk of complications. And what they did was measure the proximal and distal neck diameter, the aneurysm diameter, the aneurysm angulation, overall aortic angulation, and then they created an iliac artery scoring system separately. What they looked at in the iliac arteries was calcification, whether from going from none to more than 50%, the degree of angulation in the iliac arteries, tortuosity, and the diameter, with a larger diameter obviously being preferable. What they found was deployment failure correlated with the total score, with a higher score in patients who failed. And one of the most important um, indicators was the presence of iliac calcification. So these are very important to note in your preoperative interpretation. Um, Deployment failures also had higher total aortic tortuosity. So severe tortuosity can hamper graft delivery or prevent unsheathing of the graft. In a separate investigation, it's been shown that aortic caliber is associated with outcome and larger aneurysms have a higher mortality. The, in comparing survivors and non-survivors, there was a significantly higher caliber, larger caliber aneurysm in those who were the non-survivors. Moving on to another complication, and that is stent collapse. There was a study that evaluated a number of variables to try to define predictors of stent collapse. These were uh, a number of very different indicators that you could measure on the preoperative CT, including the proximal and distal aortic diameter, the smallest diameter of the stented segment, interluminal lip length, arch radius of curvature, lip to arch angle, whether the stent was there was complete stent graft apposition, whether the subclavian arteries covered, and the percentage of oversizing. What they found was that there was a significant difference between the distal ceiling zone diameter with a smaller ceiling zone diameter for the stents that collapsed compared to those that were intact. And the minimum aortic diameter within the graft was significantly smaller in the stents that collapsed at 19 millimeters. So these are considerations. If you have a very narrow lumen where the pathology is located, that may increase the risk that the stent is going to collapse. One of the most feared complications is spinal cord ischemia. And unfortunately, there are still some percentage of patients that will develop spinal cord ischemia after stent placement. It is more likely in cases with extensive aortic pathology necessitating longer coverage. So 
important to indicate in your report the length of coverage required in that being the length of the pathology, whether it's an aorta or dissection, intramural hematoma. So there's a higher risk for spinal cord ischemia if more than 50% of the thoracic aorta requires coverage or if you're if they're covering from T9 to T12. This was defined in one paper. There was a paper that defined, tried to categorize different types of coverage, type A being from the left subclavian to the T6 level, type B from T6 to the diaphragm, and type C, including both of those, from the left subclavian to the diaphragm, and type C carry the highest risk of spinal cord ischemia. So um, that is something that we need to indicate and clearly best evaluated with coronal and sagittal NPRs to define the length of coverage that will be required. Moving on to the different types of descending thoracic aortic pathology that have been repaired with endovascular stents, these include aneurysm, penetrating ulcer, dissection, intramural hematoma, and aortic rupture, and I'm going to discuss things that are specific to each of these types of pathology with regard to stent placement. So aneurysms are the most, have been, um, repaired, the most commonly repaired pathology. It was the first FDA-approved indication. Big study of over 11,000 patients, some of whom underwent open repair and others who underwent endovascular repair, revealed that there were 60% fewer complications from endovascular repair and a shorter hospital stay, despite the fact that these patients were older and had higher comorbidities. As you can imagine, many of them were not surgical candidates. Um, TVAR was more expensive. That was one of the downsides. Um, but there was a reduction in morbidity and mortality even for ruptured aneurysms. With respect to penetrating ulcers, stents can be placed if the, if, whether it's a simple penetrating ulcer or if it's been complicated by intramural hematoma, pseudoaneurysm, or even rupture. We, there have been, these patients have all been treated with stents. Of note, the presence of an intramural hematoma carries a higher risk of treatment failure, including the requirement for open repair or endovascular reintervention. Um, it also is associated with aortic rupture and other aortic-related mortalities. Uh, with increasing frequency, type B dissections are being repaired. In a large study that included almost 5,000 patients, there was a reduced rate of complications despite a higher incidence of cardiac and peripheral vascular disease in the endovascular stent group. So type B dissection is classically a pathology that's treated medically and not surgically or, or with an inter interventional procedure, but there are indications if the dissection has ruptured, if there's a rapid increase in size defined as more than five millimeters over six months, patient who has pain, persistent pain or refractory hypertension or if the dissection has resulted in compromised perfusion of a branch vessel, these are all indications for uh, either urgent or emergent treatment. In treating these patients, the goal is to exclude and thrombose the false lumen. Some factors that are predictive of a successful false lumen thrombosis include smaller preoperative maximum aortic caliber, preoperative true lumen caliber, but not the preoperative false lumen caliber. So it's important in these patients when you're, when you're uh, interpreting the CT preoperatively to provide these measurements for the vascular surgeon or the interventionalist because these are factors that 
will go into the decision making. After stent placement in a type B dissection, the natural course is for the true lumen to volume to increase and the false lumen volume to regress. This is a progressive process that occurs over a number of years. There was one paper that showed that um, the false lumen regression was about 70% at 30 days and increased to 86% at five years, while the true lumen volume increased by 30% at three days and up to 80% at five years. So that is the expected appearance on serial imaging in the absence of any complications such as an endoleak. The lack of typical alterations are indicative of an endoleak. So if the true lumen is not expanding, if the overall aortic caliber is increasing, then we have to be concerned about an endoleak whether we visualize it or not. In uncomplicated cases without an endoleak, the total aortic diameter at, at the stent will remain stable or decrease. That is the expected finding on post-intervention imaging. And the distal aortic volume, the, the aorta distal to the stent, will decrease by 10% if the patient does not have an endoleak. And we'll talk more about endoleaks later. Moving on to intramural hematoma, the indications for repair of an intramural hematoma at presentation are either the presence or high risk of rupture um, or an under, underlying penetrating ulcer as the etiology for intramural hematoma. In addition, patients who have findings indicative of instability require um, intervention. This includes sustained chest or back pain, development of an ulcer-like projection or a dissection, which can occur over time in patients with an intramural hematoma. If they have refractory hypertension, if the aortic caliber is increasing or the, the thickness of the wall where the intramural hematoma is located, if that increases, that's an indicator of instability or clearly if the, if the patient has ruptured. So here's a patient with an intramural hematoma. There's an axial image and a sagittal MPR showing the long segment intramural hematoma extending along the descending thoracic aorta. On this coronal MPR, we can see that the patient has an aberrant right subclavian artery, as shown by the arrow. Over time, what happened was the thickness of the hematoma increased from 12 to 17 millimeters. We have an enlarging left pleural effusion. This is an indication for intervention. And this is confirmed on the sagittal reconstruction. You can see the increasing thickness of the intramural hematoma over time. So this patient underwent stent repair with m multiple stents placed from the arch through the descending thoracic aorta and this stent was positioned just distal to the left subclavian artery but as predicted this resulted in coverage of the aberrant right subclavian artery so prior to stent placement in this patient the surgeon performed a right common carotid to subclavian artery bypass um, again, CT providing all the information to enable the surgeon to do preoperative planning. The technique for intramural hematoma is really to target the intimal tear if you can locate the intimal tear. One study showed that the entry tear can be identified in 83% of patients. It, ideally, using the shortest length of stent possible to cover the tear is optimal. This is not possible in cases where the tear can't be identified. And what is the natural course after, after stent placement for intramural hematoma? The wall thickness decreases or returns to normal. But this can take from one, year to, from one month to one year following stenting. It's a gradual process. 
similar to what happens with the aortic dissections. Endovascular stents have been placed in patients with aortic rupture. This has been shown to have a lower mortality and a higher rate of routine discharge as well as lower complication rate and significantly shorter hospital stay in comparison to open repair. The complication rate that was lowered included the incidence of permanent paraplegia, pulmonary and renal complications. What a number of different papers have shown in patients with aortic rupture is really that the, the strongest predictor of outcome is the patient's age and whether they present with hypovolemic shock rather than how they're treated, um, whether it's surgically or endovascular stent, with an endovascular stent. So that is, those are a set of variables that are specific to that type of pathology. Okay, when I come back, I think I'm going to stop here. When I come back, I'm going to discuss the complications and show a number of different cases um, for follow-up imaging of these patients with CT. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.